this weekend having Hal Farnsworth here to preach. This is a third message in a three-message series on being reconciled to Christ, so I hope you'll go online and listen to those if you were not here Friday night and Saturday evening. Hal's the pastor, the founding pastor, and for the past 17 years, pastor Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Athens. Um, many of you have been a part of that church. A number of your children uh, growing up when they were in college were part of that church. And uh, he's a longtime friend of mine, and we're grateful that you're here, Hal. Not used to a pulpit like this. 1996, I left uh, Vanderbilt, RUF, and went to start uh, a church in Athens. And it began in our living room, and We'll be, we're beginning our third church uh, this, this year. And so one of the things in my mind is, is, is we plant churches is how do we do this? How do we do this from the beginning that a hundred years from now the Redeemer is still preaching the gospel and our churches are preaching the gospel? And I just want to say that I think this church is a great model for that. This church has uh, been here for, um, what, a hundred and something years? And, and, and it's still faithful to preach Christ. And so I want you to know that I'm honored uh, to be with you and share the gospel with you. Now, the theme has been reconciled in Christ. And so Friday night I talked about the fruit of reconciliation that there should be fruit in a church in a body of people where Christ is preached. It's just the way it should be. People would come into Christ. Churches that no longer preach the gospel, they die. Then the second thing that we looked at was uh, that reconciliation in Christ, uh, that we need to be certain of that. And we're not going to share our faith. It's hard hard to introduce uh, someone to a person you don't know, Right? And so there's, there's the certainty of reconciliation to know that uh, hopefully today that you know that you're in Christ, that God has reconciled you, chosen you, called you, given you the Holy Spirit, given you a new life. But what I want to look at today is the, uh, the cost of that reconciliation. For us to be one with one another and to be one with God. So if you would, I would like for you to turn your Bibles to our, actually our theme text today. It's in in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for calling us. According to your word that before the the earth was ever created, 
before there was time throughout all eternity. You chose us in Christ. You have adopted us. And Lord, we're amazed at your grace who know you. Lord, it is our desire that we gather the nations. It's the nature of someone who has a good family to want to invite people into their home, into their lives. And so, Father, I pray this church would continue that great work of inviting people here to hear the gospel and loving on people and sending people out to minister this gospel of reconciliation. And we ask it in your name. Amen. I only have two points uh, this morning. And the first point is this. It's very clear in our text. There, there is a need to be reconciled. We have this need of reconciliation, according to our text. That either a man or a woman is reconciled or they're not reconciled. They're either in Christ or they're not in Christ. There's no gray area here. And we see that in verse 21, don't we? And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled. Now, this is the first time I've actually come to that word. And so let me give a definition of what reconciliation is. You ever done a bank statement? I, I hated doing bank statements. I love Internet banking now. You've done, it's just right there, right? You know what I'm talking about? But I remember just hours, staying up all night, trying to reconcile my checkbook. Because it's very important that the bank agreed with me, or maybe I should say that I agreed with the bank, about what was in my checkbook. I needed to have that relationship with the bank, albeit very impersonal. Reconciliation. Accounts are right. Things are right. They're not wrong. There are no debts that are out there. No uh, check fees or bounce check fees. But reconciliation at a much deeper level can be defined this way. It is the restoration of a relationship. A relationship that's been busted. There's been, a, there's been a grievance. There's been a hurt. There's been a wound. And then there's forgiveness. Debt's been paid. Reconciliation. Buried a man about six months ago. He was an All-American football player. And uh, for some reason, some years back, uh, he got sideways with, with one of his children. And uh, this, this child, this son, uh, is a believer, professing believer. But somewhere along the line, the father offended him. They might see each other at Christmas. In fact, when his son came to the funeral, I think that was the first time he had seen his father in, in a year. But his father was gone. His father would weep over that. How sad. No, no reconciliation. Could you imagine? But on the other hand, as a minister of the gospel and as one who does a lot of marital counseling, 
One of the greatest things in the world is to see a husband and a wife who begin to understand the gospel and how if I'm received by Christ and I know God has reconciled me in Jesus Christ, why would I be disconnected from you? And this awesome thing to see is reconciliation. Now this statement is one of the great statements about the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian. Paul is saying that a Christian is somebody who's no longer hostile toward God. Their mind is not. They're not alienated from God. And so, therefore, again, you see that basically the Bible teaches about two kind of people. Those who are reconciled, you're not hostile anymore. Your mind is kind of wrapped around the gospel. And then everybody else. And over the years, I've shared the gospel literally with thousands of people. All kind of shapes and sizes and varieties. Atheists, agnostics, uh, people who've been burned by the church, people who are at church that after I've talked to them and I've done my diagnostics, I'm thinking, well, you know what? They know everything, but they don't know him. And then there are those who Paul defines. He tells you, what a Christian is, especially in his prayer. He's praising God for these Colossians who have entered into the faith. And what is alive in them is faith and hope and love, not, not law, but a relationship with Christ. He says this is what a Christian is. You're living by faith. You're living in hope. I mean, you're actually living that out. You're not just justified by faith. He says the just shall live by faith. You know, I remember when I first became a Christian, if you look at the scriptures, I remember the first time I'm, I'm, I'm a new believer and I'm reading the book of Acts. It's the first book I read as a, as a Christian. I don't know why I read it, but it was amazing to me. You know what was amazing about it was, wow, that's, that's what's happened to me. And you see these men who were sad and broken and everything was defeated. And they were going the other way. And then the Holy Spirit comes. And man, they were completely changed. And you see this whole community. It's not like a, a philosophy class or a theology class. But there's a community that's been gathered through this reconciliation with God. You see, this is New Testament Christianity. This is what is meant by Christianity. It's about somebody who's enraptured with God. That their mind is wrapped around the resurrection of Christ. To be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. And when you know other Christians that maybe have minor differences, like they're Baptist, or, but if they know Jesus, they know this. It, it, it kind of pales in, in, in significance versus somebody you agree with theologically, but they don't know Jesus. It's like, who is this person? I don't know. I have a hard time connecting with this person. Why? Because they don't know they're dead. They don't know that they're not alive and reconciled. So why then are other people not Christians? Why are, the, why, why are there Christians and not Christians? I mean, that's just very clear in the Bible. That's because they're hostile in their minds. If you're not a believer today, uh, you're really hostile in your mind. Now, what does that mean to be hostile? Well, it means that... Uh, Actually, here's what it means, is your brain is a little bit broken spiritually. You only see things in part. You don't quite see it. 
It's like this thing you turn and, and it kind of this reflection and you kind of get it, but you don't really get it. Because the essence of what it means to be a Christian is you see the whole thing. You've entered in. You've been raised with Christ. Matter of fact, Paul says in Colossians 3, if you're a Christian, that you're seated with Christ. You've been reconciled. You're already there. So you see the whole thing. And hey, if your mind is hostile, and we'll talk about what alienation is in a minute, it just means it can't put the pieces together. They do not submit to the Word of God. They're interested in it. They might read it and go, well, let me think about that. Versus one who goes, the, I, the Word of God has birthed me and I submit to the Word of God. So why are they wrong? Because they are not reconciled to God and if you're not a Christian today, you don't think rightly about yourself. You're deceived. John Calvin said this. There's a very first sentence of the Institutes. He said, there's two kinds of knowledge that you must have to function in reality. A knowledge of God and a knowledge of self. And then he goes on to say this, what man does not remain as he is, indeed, what man will not remain as he is as long as he does not know himself. See, the issue is, with a lot of folks, is that they think they know. And yet they don't know. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Every generation has to, to answer that. <clears throat> but it's amazing how vague people can be about it. When I was a campus minister at Mississippi State, they all grew up in the church. They grew up Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, uh, Church of God, Pentecostal. I had them all coming. And so I'd sit down with them and I would say, tell me, what is a Christian? Do you know you have eternal life if you've been made new? And, and they say, well, a Christian is uh, Jesus died on the cross. I'm like, okay, check in that blank there. But what if I were to tell you that it's not multiple choice and God wants you to write an essay on that? What has his death got anything to do, do with you being reconciled before God? And they're clueless. I don't know, that's something being good, trying hard, being a very good Presbyterian, being a PCA person. You fill in the blank. What is Paul's definition of a Christian? Well, we see it in our, in our text earlier. It's one who's giving thanks. <laughs> you know, a Christian is somebody who is amazed, constantly amazed, at their present union with Christ. Paul says, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now rec uh, reconciled. Basically, Paul is saying this, hey, I get that you get it now. He's defining what a Christian is. A Christian is somebody who's growing in their faith. They're growing in their love for the saints. They love God's people. They don't hate God's people. They don't hate their spouse. They love their spouse. I remember uh, when I was first converted, just my own experience with this. I was dramatically converted. Most people aren't. That's okay. What matters is not when you became a Christian, but that you're a Christian. Will you agree with that? That you're converted. That you're united to Jesus Christ. That you're born again. 
And so uh, I was converted at the beach at Polly's Island on a date, up to no good. I, I, I wish I had time to give you my testimony. I don't. I was 17 years old. I get in my car. Oh, and now I thumb back. I, I hitched a ride back the, that very next day because I didn't want to be down there. I figured I'm a new creature, creature. I don't be down here doing whatever it is I'm not supposed to be doing. So on my way back to Greenville, South Carolina, where I grew up, there's a guy named Joe Tyler. And Joe Tyler and I were, well, we weren't really friends, but we went to a fairly large church, kind of like this. It was First Press of Greenville, South Carolina. And, uh, and he and I, uh, he went to a different high school, and uh, he was a good athlete, struck me out all the time when I played baseball. I didn't like him. And, uh, but I remember uh, one thing we did have in common was we would, and this sounds terrible, and, and I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but we would, we would literally sing cuss words in the hymns. And we thought that was really cool. You know why? Because our minds were hostile at 14, 15 years old. Maybe you're 14 or 15 years old. Maybe your mind is alienated and hostile. But I remember, um, I remember coming back, and I, 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 so I'm, I'm riding the back seat of somebody's car, I don't know, because I'm thumbing back, and I'm thinking of this guy, Joe Tyler. And so I, I get home, and I pick up the phone, and I have no idea why I'm calling him. I really don't know why I'm calling him. So I said, hey, Joe, this is Hal Farnsworth. He said, really? I said, yeah. And he said, what's going on? And I think I was stumbling around. I didn't know what to say. He said, let me ask you something. Have you been converted? And I said, is that what happened to you? <laughs> you know why? Because it dawned on me. He, he was different. He, he was a nice guy. He was a guy that uh, started helping the Sunday school class, and he could articulate, and I'm thinking, man, this guy's 17 years old, and he knows everything. You see, that's what it means to be a Christian, is, is you just kind of know it to a certain extent with certain people. Now, the opposite of that uh, is to be dead in your sin. Now, Paul talks about this in Ephesians when... He says, uh, you who once were dead in your trespasses and sin, who used to walk uh, in darkness following the course of this world, the Spirit has made you alive. You were dead, but now you're alive. Now, let me tell you the opposite of what happened to me and Joe was a, a college student who went off to college. They grew up in a good PCA church. And uh, so some philosophy professor convinced him that the gospel's not true, and so the, he came home Thanksgiving, and the preacher is preaching, and he's talking about being dead in sin or feeling the guilt of your sin, the weight of your sin. And so the young man went up to him after and said, Pastor, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe that anymore. And he said, what do you not believe? He said, well, I certainly don't feel the weight of my sin. And he said, well, son... I want you to walk outside with me a minute. So they walked out on the front steps. They looked down the corner, and there was a, a, a funeral home there. And he said, let me ask you something, son. If we went down there right now and put 100 pounds on top of somebody just getting ready to, to be dressed up to, for their funeral, uh, would they feel the weight? And he said, no, sir, I guess they wouldn't. He said, well, let me tell you something, son. The reason you don't feel the weight of your sin is because you're dead in your sin. You see, the, the New Testament is about what God does. He reconciles you. The Lord of heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit and he makes you, he makes you alive. 
So Christianity is not about being moral or, or good. It's not about uh, knowledge. It's about being alive. It's not about being nice, but being new. It's not about uh, being good, but being different. This is all through the this is all through the New Testament. Nicodemus was hostile in his mind. Uh, he saw bits and pieces, so he wanted to see Jesus. Right in John chapter three, he says, "Hey, maybe I can get a little bit more information and be a better rabbi." That was exactly what was going on with the Colossian church. There were others who were going, "Hey, listen, uh, this faith, hope, and love thing. There's more stuff that's here." Why do they do that? Because they see in bits and pieces. Let me tell you what, if you're confused about what I'm saying, then maybe your mind's hostile. But he comes to to Jesus, and Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, you're not going to get this. You have to be born again. What is the born again? All of a sudden, you see things from God's perspective. You're alive, and it all makes sense to you because you're reconciled to God. Well, men need to be changed. They need their minds changed. Because not only does the text tell us that uh, a person who's not a Christian, their mind is hostile toward God. It says they are alienated. And what it means to be an alien is to live in a place and you're there, but you're not a citizen. You're not really participating. You're estranged. Well, I could say more about that, but my service is an hour and a half and yours is an hour. <laughs> but but I, I hopefully I'm getting my point across here. That You know what it means to be a Christian? Is you're reconciled. Yeah, did y'all get that point? You're alive. You're new. Now let me ask you, are you? I'm asking that question every Sunday at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You see, to love somebody is to always ask, where is that person? What's going on with that person? And what I've discovered with both Christians and non-Christians, there are non-Christians, as I sit there and try to get to know them, they're actually kind of minimum resistant toward moving toward Christ. And then I can have an elder, and all of a sudden, I'm asking questions, and I think he's moving toward maximum resistance. Because... We either don't get the gospel or we forget the gospel. That's just kind of how the way we operate. But let me encourage you in something, ladies and gentlemen. You've been reconciled if you're in Christ. You're not what you should be. You don't love God the way you do. You hear, say, oh, yeah, praise the Lord. Man, that's awesome. And you're going, man, I'm just miserable today. I don't feel like praising God. But you see, Jesus, every day that he lived, every day that he lived in the presence of his Father, he loved God. He loved everybody. And uh, he always did what was right. He always was on. And then he got crucified for it. And he got all your stuff that you didn't do this week or I didn't do and we should love God. And worse yet is if you're a self-righteous person, then you don't really, you don't not, not worry about reconciliation. You've forgotten the gospel. But you know what? Jesus Christ has done all that for us, credits it into our account, and it says we are reconciled in him. You're talking about bank accounts. You have the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You're united to him. 
Well, there's a cost of reconciliation, isn't there? To be reconciled to God. I mean, people around the world, they need to know Jesus Christ. They need to be reconciled. You know why they need to be reconciled? And that they've never heard the gospel? Because they're just like you and me. They're guilty. Well, where do we see the cost? Well, it says, He has now reconciled in His body a flesh. We have been reconciled by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see that? He is, we were reconciled. The accounts were made right legally in his body. Because you see, before you can have a relationship with God, you must be presentable. And if you think you can enter into the presence of God without the work of Christ and the love of God and being in, in Christ... You don't understand the situation. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul here is actually alluding to all the Old Testament ceremonial laws to be presented holy and blameless. Now, I'm going to be uh, reading through Leviticus here soon. It's kind of in the Bible reading, and I confess to you, I, some, I really kind of dread it too sometimes because it's like... It's just unbelievable, right? This, uh, the, the, the ceremonial laws, the, the clean laws, and if you, have a, you know, if you have a rash, don't go in. If you have an issue of blood, don't go in. Uh, if you have like uh, a scab or something, don't go in, don't go in, don't go in. Well, why is it doing that? Because, uh, you know what, our bodies get dirty, and uh, so we can't enter into the presence of God that way. But what it's really pointing to is who we really are apart from Christ. That inside us, Jesus says, there is adultery and murder. For if you hate, you kill. And Jesus just lays it right out there that you're not presentable. I had a professor named Dr. John Sanderson. I took a class on Leviticus and Hebrews. Best class I, I, I took. I mean, so we're going through Leviticus. And you'd have to know Dr. Sanderson. He's with the Lord now. Very humble man. But I'll never forget, the, he got very animated when he started talking about how the priest would take the blood and he would sprinkle it on everything that he touched. And then he stopped and he said, you know, gentlemen, everything that we touch, we contaminate. We touch our children, we contaminate them. We touch our spouses, everything. We touch our finances, everything that we do. Why? Because we're unclean by nature. But we get this idea of being presentable, don't we? We want to be presentable. Did y'all, most of y'all dressed up today, came here, and y'all look nice. Because we want to be accepted. I mean, and that's, that's a good thing. I'm not saying, you know, not, don't dress up. When I was in high school, uh, I remember dating a girl, and I was very confident, looked dapper when I left for the date, picked her up, uh, went to a dance, and, you know, uh, we were kind of hitting it off, and then I went into the bathroom, and then I noticed that I, w I didn't look as dapper as I thought, and there was kind of a blemish on my face, okay, and there, there the mirror was, exposing that I was not as handsome as I thought I was. And so when I came back to be with a girl, uh, she kind of wondered what happened. You know what? Because I was being nice and 
She, she thought she did something wrong. But I was exposed. You see, that's what the law of God is to do. The law of God is to expose your absolute need for a sacrifice. It's the blood alone of Christ that can take away your sin. Remember the story of Jesus with a woman who had the issue of blood? She had had it for 12 years. And let me tell you what that means, ladies. She could not go into the presence of God. That, that was the law. But she had heard about Christ. Perhaps she had observed him. And so she makes her way to him. And if something touches something unclean, it becomes unclean. And here she is in all her brokenness, in all her desperation, did the absolute no-no, and she grabs hold of him. And when she does, she's clean. But not Jesus. You see, he gave his blood so that she might be healed. He shed his blood that you might be healed, so that you might be presentable before God. I'm almost through. Last year we looked at the um, book of Mark at Redeemer. The book of Mark divides up very nicely. First eight chapters, it talks about the person of Christ. Who is Jesus? Well, we talk about at Christmas, God in the flesh. Very clear that that's what's getting laid out there. In fact, if you go a little bit earlier in our text, before it talks about his reconciliation, it talks about his person. That in the fullness of the, fullness of God, of the Godhead dwells in Christ. And so the first part of the book is, is about the person of Christ. And then there's this turn in chapter 8 where there's going to be this confession by Peter of who Jesus is. Y'all know that story. But do you know right before that, there was a blind man that was healed. Do y'all remember that story where he touched the man and they asked him what he saw and he said, well, I see uh, men as trees walking, whatever that meant. Y'all remember that? And then he touched him again. He said, what do you see now? And he saw perfectly. Now, the reason I think that was there before Peter's profession is because the man saw, but he kind of didn't see, did he? You kind of see, but you don't see. And so he makes this profession. And then Jesus says, he starts talking about his work. And he said, the Son of Man must be crucified and suffer. And on the third day, he'll rise. And Peter says, no, you're not. And here's what Jesus says to Peter when he says, Satan, get behind me. He said, Peter, let me tell you what. Here's what you don't understand. Your confession that I'm God and my being God, being here, is not enough. Debt's got to be paid. Somebody has to pay. So Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, when he died, he died for you by name. All the sins that you've ever committed or ever will commit were imputed to Christ. And in his resurrection, you are united to him and he gives you the Holy Spirit to embrace all the benefits from Christ. Great cost. I'm going to close about telling you about my brother. I have five older brothers. I'm the youngest of six. 
And um, I won't go into all the details, but I'll just say this. Um, he saved me from drowning. I didn't like my brother. He, I mean, seriously, he beat the tar out of me growing up. I hated him, to be honest with you. And I, I started lifting weights so I could beat him up. He's three years older, so I was going to beat him up one day. And, uh, and then he got converted. This is right before I, this, this, uh, this happened. It was nice for a while because he was so different. Right? He was different. It was awesome. Because, but then it started bothering me because I didn't have all the pieces. He did. He saw it. And I thought, no law can make you change like that. But, but I was, um, was going to swim across the lake where he was with a bunch of pretty girls sitting on the dock out in the middle, eating like in the middle of the lake. And I'm not a great swimmer, but they had a buoy that was there. So no problem. So I start swimming out there. And man, I, I, about halfway across, I'm done. So I just grabbed the buoy. Problem was, was the buoy wasn't attached. So I have a dilemma because I want to be cool, and because all the girls on the deck out there, and, but I didn't really want to drown. Because <laughs> that wouldn't do me a whole lot of good because I couldn't get out there in the first place. So I said, hey, hey, Bob, hey, hi. Hey, dude, I need, could you come pick me up? I'm a little tired. And he started laughing. And then, of course, eventually I started saying a couple of things uh, that got his attention. And so he comes out and he, and he saves me. I'm telling you, right before I'm getting ready to go down, he comes out in a, in a boat and he saves me. And I'll tell you, it changed my relationship with him because if he did not come, I would have died. And so he saved me. But he didn't die for me. When I was at seminary, I heard this just painful story about two brothers. I uh, read it in the news. They had these sand pits around St. Louis or somewhere in there. And there, there's two brothers. One was like 10 or 11, the other was 8 or 7. And the parents would always tell them, don't you ever go up to that quarry and get on that sand pit. They disobeyed. So they're climbing up and down these sand pits, right? And so they get to the top of one of them, and they're both up there, and all of a sudden it starts sinking this way. Parents couldn't find their boys. And uh, so finally they come and they checked out that sand pit, and they found one of their sons alive, the seven-year-old. His head was right at the top. And they asked, where is my brother? Where's your brother? And his brother had picked him up and put him on his shoulders. An 11-year-old gave his life for his brother. Now that's a sacrifice. Is Jesus your brother? See some God up there, Jesus Christ, Apostles Creed, or is he your brother? If he's your brother, let me tell you what. Our sins crushed him. Now, this is the gospel that needs to be preached throughout the world, in Uganda, in China, wherever, wherever it is we're going, Nicaragua. You know, people often ask me, well, you know, what about people, you know, never heard? What, what, you know, this is why I'm not a Christian. And I always tell them, I say, well, you know what? A, they're just like you. They're guilty. Okay, why do you think they're any different? They need to be saved. And number two, why are you worried about them when your sins are on your head? Come to Christ and rest in Him.
Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray for any who are here today that might not know you. Uh, Lord, they see bits and pieces, but they have never surrendered their lives that they might see from heaven's perspective that they're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Pray for the children that are here, or maybe some teenagers, Lord, that you would work in them. Lord, we know that your, that your word teaches us to look to Christ. We know that but a glance of faith to Christ brings us to heaven, but a gaze by faith, gazing upon him, will bring heaven to earth. I pray for this church that you would bring heaven to earth right here at First Press. Pray for Redeemer and our church plants. Lord, we love you. Father in heaven, you loved us so much that you gave your son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And we love you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.